Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. Really excited to be speaking to Jessica Del Rio today. Jess, before we get into the nitty-gritty of our conversation, are you able to just tell us a bit about your journey into the position that you're in today? Yeah, well, thank you so much for um, having me on to chat today. I think podcasts like these are really important in making complex topics really accessible to a wide audience. So I'm really excited to be able to chat. And I should say I'm, um, I'm talking to you from uh, Ngunnawal and Nambri land here in Canberra and it's great, great to be, to be talking. So I'm a consultant at a company called Equity Economics and we provide social policy and economic advice to not-for-profit and philanthropic organisations to address disadvantage in Australia and the region. And many of us working at Equity have held senior positions in the public service. So prior to working at Equity, I had around two decades working in the public service, mainly in the Commonwealth Public Service, but also in Canada. But my career actually began in the ACT Education Directorate as a university graduate. And that experience was was wonderful because it was a really supportive environment. And the composition of the Education Directorate was really quite unique because there was a significant number of former teachers and principals working there, which um, is certainly not the case that you have so many practitioners practitioners in other um, departments. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, you know, because like, you've just written this report, you know, which really delves into the current state of, of education, in particular literacy in Australia. And I was going to ask, you know, like, did you have much of a background in education beforehand? And it seems like, you know, you've, you've got a little bit of a background there. And, and did that kind of spark your interest in, in your current role? My experience has more been in, in social policy generally. So I've, I've done a lot of work in relation to immigration and to the services and policies in relation to First Nations people. And it's, it's really only been in the, in the last few years that I've delved into education. Yeah. Um, and I did, I did have the great privilege in my last role in the public service of managing the Adult Migrant English Program, which is one of the longest running government programs we have in Australia. It was set up to help post-war migrants to learn English and to settle in Australia. And it's a really fantastic program because participants learn English and then they get jobs and they earn higher rates of um, income. And so I really strongly encourage anyone who's interested in the AMEP to check it out because it's, it's, it's a really fantastic program. But I guess my exposure to education outside of the research that we've done at Equity Economics is as a parent. And in my during the pandemic, my husband and I decided that we were going to move from 
Canberra to Magnetic Island, which is off the coast of Townsville in Queensland. And yeah, right. that was a time when I got a really practical understanding of the different ways that schools approach literacy in Australia. And what, what we found was that our older son had really struggled to learn to read in his Canberra school when he was in kindy in year one. And so he was okay. placed in the reading recovery program, yeah. um, which helped him a lot. And he became a great reader. Uh, but he wasn't strong across the board. So we had him tested when he was nine years old in grade four. And it turned out he had the reading age of an 18 year old um, or a student in year 12. Um, but he had the spelling ability of a year three student and the sentence composition skills of a student in year two. Mm. And I later spoke to Nancy Young, who's an education reading instruction specialist based in Canada because I was interested in her infographic on the ladder of reading and writing, which I'm sure uh, many of your listeners would be familiar with. And yep. she introduced me to the term twice exceptional, which are those children who are exceptionally strong in some way, but also have a learning disability, which means that they think and process information differently. And so often their giftedness masks their disability and their disability masks their giftedness. And my eldest son falls into this category. So he he has extremely strong reading comprehension abilities, but he also has dysgraphia, which impacts on his spelling and grammar. And um, even though he's a really strong reader, he actually guesses a lot of words. So we were watching one of the Indiana Jones movies the other day, which showed a map where India is flying into Austria. And my son turned to me and said, why is Indiana Jones flying to Australia? Very strong yeah. in some ways, but does have some deficiencies. And so as parents, we didn't really understand when we enrolled our son at the local school, but there were different approaches being used in different schools to the way in which children were taught to read. But yeah. then when my younger son was learning to read in Canberra, it became clear that he was also struggling in his Canberra school. And his teacher told me that he only knew one letter, which was the first letter in his name, and he was really behind the other kids. And so when we moved to Magnetic Island, his old teacher gave me a letter to give to his new teacher and I, I gave it to the new teacher. Uh, and on reflection, I gave it in quite an apologetic way as if I was saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm bringing in a student to your class who's going to make it more difficult because he's behind the other kids. But, but they had a different approach in this tiny little public school on Magnetic Island and the principal told me that, that she took a really data-driven approach, an evidence-based approach, um, and she'd invested in programs that covered the core skills for reading. And so I'd go in to meet with my son's new teacher with you know, quite a lot of anxiety. And she'd look at me very sympathetically and very patiently. And she'd just say, Jess, he's fine. He's doing absolutely mm. fine. And by the time we left Maggie, which is what the locals call the island, my younger son was at year level standard for reading. And so that brings us to my time at Equity because We've been commissioned to undertake a number of projects which look at how different sectors and states support children to become literate, uh, literate and how the education system can lift children beyond the predictability of achievement based on socioeconomic background. So I've got that sort of experience as a, as a parent, which has been complemented by the research that I've done and the people that we've spoken to, the experts that we've spoken to all around Australia. Yeah, so that, that, that leads us well into the next kind of section of, of our conversation and let's delve into that report you know so for those that, that want to look a bit more into it the title of the report is saving money by spending solving literacy in australia you start off by saying that there is a silent epidemic holding back families communities and our economy so what is the problem well, I think there are, there are three significant challenges. We have a reading challenge, an equity challenge, and an implementation challenge. So if we start with the reading challenge, one of the fundamental promises of our education system is to ensure that every child attending school learns how to read proficiently. But the latest NAPLAN data shows that around one in three Australian school students are struggling to master this really necessary reading skill. And these children come from all sorts of backgrounds, including from affluent and disadvantaged backgrounds, um, which brings us to the equity challenge. So there are two concepts in education equity. The first concept centres on ensuring that each student acquires the fundamental skills uh, essential for success in life, like reading and math. Uh, and that's an approach known as equity in minimum or basic skills. And the second concept emphasises achieving similar educational outcomes for students from various backgrounds, 
and experiences known as equity across students. And we know that in Australia, certain groups are more likely to encounter obstacles within the education system. And these groups include Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, those residing in rural or remote areas, students with disabilities and those from disadvantaged backgrounds. And these, these challenges hinder their ability to reach their full learning potential which results in a widening learning gap between students from different backgrounds as they progress through school. And, and undoubtedly factors outside the school environment contribute significantly to this equity gap, but extensive research on reading indicates that with appropriate guidance, nearly all children can attain reading proficiency. And that brings us to the, the implementation challenge. And so in 2005, the National Inquiry into the Teaching of Literacy in Australia put forward several recommendations urging the adoption of evidence-based approaches for teaching reading. And unfortunately, these recommendations were never put into action, reflecting a significant gap in implementation within our education system. And why, why is that, do you think? You know, so like you said, 2005, that's a long time ago. Why were they not put into action? Well, I think there's I think there's a few different things at play. I think so there's very different approaches across Australia. And some states and territories really are more progressed in implementing changes which are aligned with the review, those jurisdictions like South Australia and New South Wales. And I think if you look at why they implemented those changes, it was because there was a dissatisfaction with the results that they were getting for their students. They saw that there was a problem. But there are other jurisdictions which have not seen that there is a problem and do not appear to have an appetite for change. Mm. So they are, they are fundamentally happy with the results that they're getting for their students. Yeah. And, and why do you think they believe that if it's not the truth? Or is um, it the truth? I think that there's a lot of performance, which assessment of performance, which is based on relative performance. So jurisdictions like the ACT and Victoria do better than the national average and sometimes better than other jurisdictions. And so they take that to, to as an indication that they're doing as well as they possibly can be. But if you look at those jurisdictions, they still have a, a number, a high percentage of children who aren't meeting proficiency benchmarks. One in three students in those jurisdictions in year nine don't meet the proficiency benchmarks. And even in the ACT, that rises to two out of three students who are Indigenous not meeting proficiency benchmarks, and two out of three less educationally advantaged students not meeting proficiency benchmarks. But I think, I think in those jurisdictions, they do truly believe that that is the best result that can be achieved. Yeah, okay. And so what are the trends then? You know, so uh, are we seeing improvements? Or like, you know, we, we spoke about that, that 2005 report. Have some kind of states started to implement some of those and maybe it's just taken a bit longer? As you said, that one of the challenges is implementation. Well, we aren't seeing improvements. In fact, we're seeing a decline, particularly if we look at reading performance in PISA, which is the... OECD assessment of 15-year-old students' abilities, we can see that since PISA began, Australia's ranking among OECD countries for reading has dropped, falling from fourth in um, 2000 to 16th in 2018. And we can see from those PISA results that Australia's been moving backwards in terms of reading proficiency over the past two decades, with 2018 results showing significant decline compared with previous year's assessments. And this decline can be seen across all states and territories. But you can see some variation in the performance of the different states and territories. So if you just look at the, at the raw performance of the states and territories in NAPLAN and PISA, you can see that the top performers are the ACT and WA, ACT and WA, and the poorest performers are Tasmania and the Northern Territory. But I don't think that's the only data point that we should look at. It's also important to look at equity in, in education, as we talked about earlier. And yep. the most equitable states are those where socioeconomic status plays a smaller role in achievement. And on this basis, PISA data shows that South Australia and WA are the strongest performers and the Northern Territory and the ACT are the poorest performers. And uh, I think that, you know, the highest performing 
education systems are one in which advantage doesn't play such a big influence on outcome. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And so like looking at, at those results, what are South Australia and WA doing well? Well, South Australia, we describe South Australia in our in our national report, which was commissioned by the Code Red Dyslexia Network as a as a lighthouse jurisdiction. And they have really been a, a leading state in Australia and, and really an international leader in what they're doing. They recognised that there was a need to lift the performance of their students. They they knew that their outcomes weren't good enough, but they also could see that the way in which they were teaching their kids wasn't working for all children. And they wanted to have an approach, a pedagogy and curriculum approach that worked for 100% of kids. And so they went about establishing the Literacy Guarantee Unit and they made a significant financial investment in providing coaches for foundational level teachers and implementing the year one phonics check, which in itself was was not the destination. The idea was to have that as a tool to identify those children who were struggling to learn to read and to be able to support them with appropriate intervention. And you can see if you look at South Australia's results from the year one phonics check that uh, they've had a significant improvement in the phonics abilities of their students uh, since they introduced the check. And um, that's across the board for all students, but it's also um, for uh, high priority equity cohorts for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, for students with a verified disability, from regional areas and disadvantaged schools. Everyone's results are going up and it's really, it's really significant. And you can also see that their NAPLAN data is showing a really great trajectory and improvement. And that whereas some of the other jurisdictions had a, had a dip in performance during COVID, South Australia's results remained really strong. So they are they are a benchmark for other states and territories. Yeah, you, you spoke about them being you know the lighthouse jurisdiction and and the literacy guarantee unit. What sort of parts of that would you say are like the you know the key mechanisms that that other jurisdictions should be following and using on on top of the coaches and the phonics check? Yeah, what else? I think that what they've done really well is support teachers and. They've made a really significant financial investment in making sure that teachers have the relief time that they need to get the training that they want and that they're not required to do this on their own time. So they are really, really supporting their, their teachers. So even if you just look at the Year One Phonics check, they when they first rolled that out, they had three days of relief time, which they provided to teachers, one day for training one day to undertake the test and one day to analyse what to do about how to support children on the basis of those test results. And that's a really significant investment in supporting teachers. We know that teacher workload is so incredibly high. Teachers are working 150% of their paid time and that that system-wide support in teachers really is, is absolutely fundamental. How how did that initially come about? Like, who asked for yeah the the changes to happen, and then is that coming from the government? So I think there were a couple of things that happened in South Australia. There was a really strong push from local uh, dyslexia advocates, which was really instrumental in creating a identification by the government that there was a need to do things differently. But the other thing that they were really able to do very successfully in South Australia was that they had bipartisan support for the Literacy Guarantee Unit initiative. So, so the politics were put to us to one side and, and they were able to have a, a shared um, commitment to wanting to lift literacy outcomes for the jurisdiction. Yeah, cool. Um, and so one of the things I've thought about is that like, a lot of, especially as you mentioned before, a lot of our listeners, they're already going to be aware of like you know, the things that need to be happening and just how important it is. Why is it not just the responsibility of educators? Well, when I speak to teachers, they say we are working so hard. Uh, they say we give so much of ourselves to our students, often to the detriment of our own families. And as a system, we need to be allowed to reflect honestly and face some hard truths if need be. Um, they say this isn't too hard, but we as teachers deserve better. 
and so do our students in our community. And they, they say to me, as teachers, we need high quality evidence-based professional learning grounded in cognitive science that is taught in depth. And we need support in translating that into classroom practice. They say, we, we didn't have access to this research in the science of uh, learning and the science of reading when we went to uni. So we need professional learning to be delivered at a system level if we're going to make positive change that's sustained. And, and I know that there are a lot of individual teachers, there are small groups of teachers, there are, there are schools, there are principals that are working really hard to implement evidence-based practice in their schools. But working in isolation is an arduous task that can easily lead to burnout. And these teachers are persisting because of their passionate commitment to ensure the success of their students but a system-led change is required to support all staff. And, and the teachers, they say to me, we must always be willing to follow the research and amend our practice when required. And individually, this isn't an easy task, but with a system behind us, we can achieve great things. And so, you know, every teacher, every principal, every school needs to be supported. And if you look at the change management process that's happened in South Australia, or if you look at the Catalyst program, which you've previously spoken about a lot on your podcast, you can see that change management takes appetite, it takes money, and it takes a really deliberate change management strategy. And that, that means that educators need to be supported by helping to build that appetite, estimate how much money is required, and, and working out the strategy so, it, so that, you know, obviously change needs to be driven by principals and teachers, but it needs to be 100% supported by education departments and ministers with, with funding, with professional development and relief time. And this is something that Australia really needs to be talking about really seriously. There needs to be a national conversation which involves educators, educational leaders, sectors, governments, parents and students. Like we have a collective responsibility because making sure, sure that kids can learn to read is one of the most solvable issues of our time. And the question is, do we have the will as a community to say we can do better? Mm. So do you think reports like the one that you'll put out, that's going to help us get this collective buy-in? I hope so. I, I, I certainly hope so. You know, a report on its own is, is, just, a, is a, just a report. But hopefully reports like we, we've done in the ACT, where we were commissioned by the Snow Foundation to look at schools in the ACT, support children to become literate and the national report that we did for the Code Red Dyslexia Network, they are they assist in providing a voice to speak from for teachers and educational leaders and parents and to have conversations, political conversations about how to drive system-wide change. And at the moment, there is a really big national conversation that is happening about this because we have the National School Reform Agreement. We have uh, education ministers having um, active conversations about what the priorities need to be for that National School Reform Agreement. So reports like this help in supporting that conversation around um, what the priorities should be for, um, for education in Australia and support that national conversation around uh, how um, investment should be targeted. And so, you know, you, you've mentioned the Tracy Guarantee Unit in South Australia and then Catalyst in ACT. Are there any other systems that are, are also starting to make some positive changes in this sort of space? Yeah, well, New South Wales has, has made a really big investment and Tasmania has announced that a big investment is coming. And I think will be, if they, if they follow the recommendations of the reading review that they, that they put in place, that will be really quite extraordinary to see what they do. Queensland, it looks like there are big changes coming there, although I think they're, they're not gonna come through till 2025. And WA has actually been quietly doing some really great things for a while now. Um, they have a, a wonderful approach with the Fogarty Foundation, which is a, a partnership between the Fogarty Foundation and the Western Australian government and the Catholic schools there, which um, really supports uh, schools and school leaders who um, are looking to go on a school improvement process. And they also have the Kimberley Schools Project, which is a massive investment in supporting schools in the Kimberley. So there's some really, there is some really great practice around Australia, but it's not universal. 
and it is a bit of a lottery. Yeah. And, and then, you know, so once we start to kind of get this system level support, what other things can we be doing to ensure that these changes are actually implemented effectively? Well, I, I, think, I think it's really well known and has been really well articulated what needs to happen. And, and it's, it's good to go back to that 2005 reading review and to, to look at how the solutions were articulated at that time. Um, obviously, universities play a really important role in this and we need to make sure that they're teaching the skills required by pre-service teachers. Um, but that in itself won't be enough because if we just rely on the universities, it'll take 20 to 30 years before those university graduates who have benefited from the changes that are going to be coming through make up the majority of the teaching workload workforce in, in schools. And so that means there needs to be appropriate professional development provided for in-service teachers um, now. And, and that can be complemented, complemented by clear standards for teachers for, for literacy and what's required for initial teacher registration and for accomplished teaching. And, and, and we've just, we need to support teachers with teaching strategies that are based on findings from rigorous evidence-based research. It's really important that there are nationally consistent assessments of children at commencement of primary school and high school with regular monitoring on the development of each child. And there needs to be appropriate intervention for those children who are falling behind. All of this, I think, requires school leaders and education departments and sectors to really critically examine their approaches to the teaching of literacy and to look at what change management and school improvement strategies need to be put in place. Yeah, you know, what you're saying there makes a lot of sense, but I think you mentioned earlier, one of the tricky things can be is just getting the systems and the schools to, to firstly realise that there's a problem in the first place, you know, and, and that things do need to change because until they realise that and that things can be improved, yeah, the, the changes don't actually happen. That's, that's absolutely right. Like, and that's, that's what's required for any change management in any kind of environment is that there needs to be a recognition that there is a need for change. And we just, we just haven't gotten to that point in every state and territory yet. Yeah. And, and look, I like how you mentioned earlier as well, how over in South Australia, they've got part of the literacy guarantee unit. They're actually giving teachers time to, to learn. You know, I find that's one of the trickiest aspects of, of our job as educators is that we've got all of this new learning that we didn't necessarily get at you know, initial teacher education level. And then you're trying to do that at the same time as teach. And if you're not giving that that thinking space and that learning time, it can yeah be really quite overwhelming once you you first engage with you know the evidence and the changes that you need to make to your practice. Because we're talking about teachers having to make habit changes, which can be really quite difficult. And and so without that system level of support where you've got that funding coming through, it can be quite difficult. Have you have you seen? Any kind of success stories without that system level support? You can, you, you certainly can see system success levels, but it comes at a really, I think, at a personal cost. So yep. there, there are teachers who are absolutely working their guts out, who are photocopying free decodable readers. They're attending sharing best practice conferences on a Saturday and they're attending Think Forward Educators after hours to meet with other interested teachers. They're, they're enrolling in master's education courses and they are uh, highly, highly, highly skilled and trained practitioners, uh, but they are doing it on their own. Yeah. And so they might not necessarily have the support of their school leadership and that comes uh, at a really high cost. And it's also, I think, really difficult if they're working in an environment where that expertise is not recognised and in some cases not understood. So the, the hope is that every, every teacher can be supported so that they don't have to do it at their own cost and time. Yeah, and look, it's, it's nice to hear a, a non-teacher recognise how much work teachers are putting in and, and the hours that they're putting in to develop themselves, you know, and and I guess where they've got to get this information from, it's it's not necessarily coming from, you know, the workplace. They've got to go and find it themselves. And so I 100% agree with you that there are so many dedicated teachers out there that they just want to do the, the best job that they can. 
um, but like you mentioned, it comes at a cost. Yes, and and there's very few other sectors where you would almost be sort of punished for having this desire for additional information. Yeah. In a lot, in a lot of other sectors, you'd be rewarded and acknowledged, and that's not always the case in education, unfortunately. Yeah. So, so what investment is required for every student in Australia to access evidence-based reading instruction? Well, we looked at the investment being made by South Australia and New South Wales and the Catholic schools in the ACT in Goulburn. And we estimate that Australia needs to invest around just shy of $1 billion to make sure every student in Australia can access evidence-based reading instruction. And, you know, this is obviously a lot of money, but the return on investment is significant. And it's not just the additional income that students would make but it's also about ensuring Australia has a more equitable education system. So it's an investment that's required in decodable readers. New South Wales, the New South Wales government made a major one-off procurement purchase of decodable readers because we know that schools have spent 40 years acquiring libraries of, the, of readers which are, which are associated with the queuing model and they can be reluctant to put those materials to one side because they have been such a significant investment. And decodable readers do come at a cost. They are required to be purchased under the changes to version nine of the Australian curriculum. So in New South Wales, they've made sure that, that the cost of those decodable readers isn't, doesn't prevent schools from having access to, to those books. There's a cost for the professional development for teachers and that's not just access to training, but it's also access to the relief time to be able to attend the training. There's uh, a cost for uh, assessment tools like the year one phonics check. There's, there's a high cost to put in place the, you know, a multi-tiered system of support. We know that all children benefit from evidence-based approaches, but 20 to 25% of students will need um, tier two small group instruction and 5% of students will need one-on-one uh, -on -one intensive support. That tier two and tier three instruction is, is expensive to, to deliver, but highly effective. And we know that when you have that really great evidence-based uh, instruction with additional support for those who need it, that 95% of students will learn to read. And that's, that's a really fundamental investment that we need to make in Australia. And, and, and it's, and it's money that's available. If there is sufficient priority placed on this, then money can be found. Mm. And so what will happen if, if we don't make these changes? Well, change is happening, but it is happening slowly. And, and I suspect change will come at the expense of a significant increase in workload intensification for teachers. It will fall on individual teachers who are already working so hard. And, and as I said, it will... I think if we just rely on the changes that are coming through initial teacher education, I think it will take 20 to 30 years before we have uh, a really significant change in Australia. And I don't think teachers want to wait that long for that no. change to happen, nor do parents and nor do, nor do the literacy experts in Australia who have already been waiting for a long time for change to come since the 2005 reading review. Mm. And so what do we need to do next then? Well, I think that the, the National School Reform Agreement provides a really great opportunity for a national conversation about the investment that's required. Education is the responsibility of state and territory governments, so they need to take leadership here in making sure that they are investing in appropriately in, in teachers and in students. There needs to be, I think, also ownership of this by the non-government sectors by Catholic and independent schools, because really parents and teachers should be able to send their, their children to any school with confidence and know that they'll learn to read wherever they're attending school. And, and I think that there needs to be recognition that this is, this is hard, that this is fundamentally a change management process and, and there are ways of doing change management well. And that has to come from leadership in schools and leadership in education departments and sectoral leadership bodies as well. Yeah, great. And, and so looking more at the, the school level, 
what sort of things can, you know, principals, school leaders and, and teachers themselves, what can they be doing if they're not necessarily getting that system level support yet? Well, I think I've spoken quite a lot with the, the leadership behind the Catalyst School Reform Program with Patrick Ellis and Jessica Colateradis and Ross, who you've already canvassed very well on the, on the podcast. But I think what they did really well, or one of the things that they did really well was that they supported their principals with information on the best reading science. And they also supported them really well with data to assist in tracking school improvement. And I think that that's a really great way to start the, the, the change management process is to look at the research and to look at the data. And we know that data isn't always necessarily used by schools as a way to track performance, but it's a really, I think, easy way to see whether what you're doing is making an impact. And um, when we looked at the performance of Catholic schools here in Canberra, we, we were able to look at publicly available NAPLAN performance and we could see that they have had an extraordinary lift in improvement in the performance of Catholic schools. So in 2019, 42% of Catholic schools were underperforming compared to students with similar characteristics in the rest of Australia and 54% of public schools in Canberra were underperforming in reading. But by 2022, that number had reduced to 4% for Catholic schools, but it had gone up to 60% for public schools. So that data is really, really important so that you know that the changes that you're doing are having an impact. Yeah. And are people starting to take notice? I think, yes, they absolutely are. I I think that what the Catholic schools are doing here is getting a lot of attention, not just in Canberra, but around Australia and also around the world because other jurisdictions and sectors that have have gone on these school improvement journeys haven't necessarily done a great job of showing the lift in data and performance. And it's really important in being able to explain what the impact of these changes are. And and certainly I think that this, this, this... improvement that can be seen in the Catholic schools in Canberra is quite extraordinary and really strong and it has got a lot of people talking because really there this is an anomaly in terms of the comparison of the two sectors here in Canberra there shouldn't be any reason for Catholic schools to be outperforming government schools in the normal course of events there's no performance advantage in Australia for students of the same socioeconomic background who attend an independent school or a Catholic school over a government school so this is showing that what they're doing in the Catholic schools is having a significant impact on their students' performance. For the price of a cup of coffee each month, you can support the Knowledge for Teachers podcast and help me provide more in-depth case studies and ensure its sustainability. I would be truly grateful if you went to patron.com slash knowledge for teachers podcast. Patrons will also get access to exclusive episodes, my key takeaways from each episode, and more. For larger organisations that are interested in sponsoring the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, send me an email at brendan at learnwithlee.net. Yeah, and yeah, this, it's really promising and, and I agree with you. It, it's great that they're willing to share all of this information as well and, and support you know, anyone that, that wants to come in and either have a, a look at, it, at what a school's doing or have a chat to, to Patrick. Yeah, they're very willing to share their journey and they're really open and honest about it all as well. So, yeah, look, and I, and I think it's what is needed because what, I, what I've found talking to other schools and, and educators is that after they first initially engage with the research, it can still seem quite abstract for them. You know, and they want to know, okay, so what does this mean for me at that that school level? What does it mean for teachers at the classroom level? How do we actually do this? You know, how how do we teach the science of reading? Because it can be quite tricky to to work out what they need to do next. And and, and so I think, yeah, having a real life opportunity to go and see, you know, a school in action and what they're doing and, and go through their journey, that can be really quite valuable. And yeah, I think it's it's great that that we've got these systems like you know the South Australia Literacy Guarantee Unit and and Catalyst who are doing really great things and and not just doing it but also willing to share it as well. 
just going over like some of the things that you've spoken about that are working well and and that I think schools might be able to take away from this conversation. So you spoke about the how the literacy guarantee unit they have um, coaches, you know that that support teachers in in making the changes. They've also got the U1 phonics check, and the teachers get relief time uh, for training. You know when we look at the Catalyst program, you know they've got like a a whole professional learning suite that teachers are able to engage with you know are there any other things that that we can be doing at that school level i i think really engaging with the research science is is the is the most important thing that can be done yeah but i think also talking to other teachers or school leaders who are who are who are more advanced on their journeys is 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 powerful as well because as you say being able to see on a practical um, basis change and being able to talk with teachers who have gone on that on that journey and who have perhaps moved from one methodology to a new methodology that's that's really a very powerful thing to do and I think seeking out those communities of other teachers and schools who are who are uh, at the similar point in their change management journey, I think is the way to go, particularly in those jurisdictions where their education department might not be as supportive or where there might be high levels of principal school autonomy. Reaching out and finding others who are, who are on a similar journey can help in making sure that teachers don't feel isolated and like they're doing it on their own. Mm. Cool. So, yeah, it's been really fascinating seeing, you know, what's happening around the country and what's working and, and what's not working and, and I guess what changes need to be made as well. You know, looking looking forward, looking ahead, what, what will that $1 billion get us? I think that that would see Australia's um, performance, our international rankings, really improve significantly. And, and we should be thinking about... Um, how we compare to other countries. We, we should be leaders in terms of the performance of our education sector. And, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be. So I think that if we make this investment, it will see Australia's international rankings improve significantly, but more importantly, on an individual student basis, it will see an improvement in reading proficiency for our students and an improvement in equity so that we can address this really concerning difference between the learning outcomes of different populations of students and we can address the the way in which education is somehow entrenching disadvantage rather than addressing disadvantage. Yeah, you know, and and when you talk about like that that disadvantage and um, not meeting reading outcomes like how significant is that on an individual basis so when we're talking about an economic point of view how is that actually impacting on those individuals that aren't able to read at a proficient level well it, it really affects every aspect of their life so the reading impacts on uh, whether they'll finish school whether they'll go on to higher education whether they'll get a job if they do get a job what their level of income will be it, uh, whether they'll be uh, dependent on welfare, uh, the rate of tax that they'll pay, but it also flew, flows through to um, their healthcare costs, um, to mental health and well-being, and it has a really, really fundamental impact across an individual's life, though their ability to read, and it's something many people take for granted, but it is absolutely fundamental to be able to navigate the economy and society. Mm. And, and I think, you know, the story that you touched on at the start of this conversation where you, you actually spoke from a point of view of a parent. And I think that's where a lot of people first engage with like just how big a problem we have when, when their children can't read or, you know, struggle to read. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, it, you know, it doesn't just happen. It can be really quite difficult for a lot of people to, to pick up. Yeah, but I think it's it's a matter of, of just making sure that more people know about the current state of, of you know literacy in Australia and you know, hopefully conversations like these can, you know, get out there and, and 
make it more well known, I guess. I think that's I think that's right. And I think I think it's something that we take for granted. We I think, you know, as a parent, we expect that we'll send our child to school and that they will learn to read. And yeah. But that is not the case for 30% of children, for one in three children, which is quite extraordinary that they won't become proficient in reading. And that has to be there has to be national ambition to improve that so that every child can access their right to read and benefit from that education in their future life. And I think we, as a society, really owe, we have a requirement to make sure we understand how instruction or what instruction looks like at our local school. I confess that when I enrolled my children in my local public school, I just assumed that... Um, that the school would be following the evidence and the science on how children learn to read. And that just isn't necessarily the case. In fact, it's been well documented that it isn't the case. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it is interesting. And, and I think you're right there where you do just assume that if you if you send your child to a school, that they're going to learn to read. Like it should be at least the, the bare minimum of what they come out of, you know, particularly primary school with. Yeah, but I, like having come from a high school background, like I know for a fact that yeah, there were a lot of kids that were coming into Year 7 not at that the required level that they should have been at in, in terms of reading. So, yes, it's definitely a, a big problem. And like you mentioned, you know, the trends are that they're, they're still on a downward trajectory and, and so we definitely need to be making changes and uh, hopefully more systems can start to look at the Literacy Guarantee Unit and Catalyst and start to take a bit of advice from what they're doing and, and the success that they're seeing so that we can we can stop this downward spiral and we can help more children learn to read. Look, Jess, this is the Knowledge for Teachers podcast and, and so I'd just like to kind of finish up with asking my guests, you know, what other bits of information do you think are important for teachers to engage with and, and this can be to do with reading or it can be to do with yeah, anything really well personally i really like the pisa reports uh, and i can't wait till the new pisa re results come out later this year i'd be so great if australia's performance had improved in the latest results but i doubt unfortunately that they will have i really think that the grattan institute has done a great job in putting together a body of research on the economic impact of education. And I, there's a, a report I particularly like by Julie Sonneman and John Goss, which um, they put together a few years ago, which me measures student progress for each state and territory. That's a really um, great report. Um, uh, Jessica Colaterradas has put together a really terrific Churchill Fellowship report, which provides a great comparison of what's happening in other countries, particularly to support older students who are struggling with literacy. Um, and I've learned a lot from listening to podcasts like yours. Um, I did a lot of trail running when I was on Magnetic Island, listening to podcasts on literacy. And one of the best ones I listened to was an interview on the Melissa and Laurie Love Literacy podcast with Stephen Dijkstra, who's a psychologist. He talked about how reading trauma is frequent and repetitive. And over time, it wears down children who can't read with devastating effects. And Stephen explains the connection between not being taught to read using evidence-based practices and the subsequent unnecessary trauma this causes in children's lives. And sometimes in Australia, the debate can be presented as if foundational skills come at the expense of well-being or vice versa. And this interview does a great job of explaining the complex intersection between the two challenges. And I think that in Australia and around the world, kids are often blamed for not learning to read. And there's what's called the soft bigotry of low expectations, where it's assumed that certain groups of children will be weaker readers. And we really have to confront this if we want to have an equitable education system. Couldn't agree more. Look, Jess, thank you for your time today. It's been great having a chat about all of this. And look, I, I hope that yeah, more systems, more schools are able to make the changes that, that you've gone through today. And yeah, we can start to see those um, trajectories changing and, and going upwards instead of downwards. And I think the main thing for me is everyone should be able to read. It, it shouldn't it shouldn't be okay to, to have students leaving school not being able to read. So, yeah, I, I'm hoping that reports like the one that you'll put out and, you know, the ones that are, are coming out, they're able to, to push the changes that need to be made. So, yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Brendan. It was a pleasure.
I feel Jess was able to really get to the heart of the problem through her use of data, and she succinctly articulated what we need to be doing at both system and school level. Here are my key takeaways. She she spoke about her conversation with Nancy Young and the term twice exceptional, which refers to children who are exceptionally strong in some way, but also have a learning disability. So often their giftedness masks their disability, and their disability masks their giftedness. There are three significant challenges. We have a reading challenge, an equity challenge, and an implementation challenge. The latest NAPLAN data shows that around one in three Australian school students are struggling to master reading. There are two concepts in education equity. The first concept centres on ensuring that each student acquires the fundamental skills essential for success in life. The second concept emphasises achieving similar educational outcomes for students from various backgrounds and experiences known as equity across students. Jess spoke about the false dichotomy of judging success based on relative performance. Both Catalyst and the Literacy Guarantee Unit provide coaching for teachers to support the implementation of changes. She also highlighted the relief time that teachers get for training so that it doesn't have to be done in their own time. At the start, they received a one day. Um, they received one day for training, one day to undertake the test, and one day to analyse what to do about those test results. Because we haven't been receiving access to the research on the science of learning and reading at uni, we need to be receiving professional learning at a system level that is grounded in the cognitive science. We need nationally consistent assessments of children at the commencement of primary and high school with regular monitoring. We need the government to make a significant investment in decodable readers to support the implementation of evidence-based reading instruction. Just emphasise the need to support school leaders in understanding the research behind how we can t- best teach our students to read and assist them in using the data to track achievement. I thought she presented some pretty strong data when comparing the performance of the Catholic schools in the ACT versus the public schools, with the Catholic schools moving from having 42% of students underperforming to a remarkable 4%, while the public schools actually went in the opposite direction and increased from 54% to 60% in the same time frame, and this is for students with the same socioeconomic background. Not being able to read impacts on every aspect of someone's life. The reading impacts whether they will finish school, go on a higher education, get a job, what their income level will be if they do get a job, whether they'll be dependent on welfare, and it even flows through to the well-being and mental health of the individual. She finished with talking about the soft bigotry of low expectations, where it's assumed that certain groups of children will be weaker readers. I'm really excited to dig a bit deeper into what successful schools and systems are doing in this space in my next chat with Jessica Kalu Turatis, where we will talk about her recent Churchill Fellowship experience and what she learnt from her project to identify effective language and literacy screening and intervention practices for at-risk students. However, that's it from me for today, and as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.